Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. The Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast is now supported by the Urban Land Institute. To find out more about becoming a member, please follow the link in the show notes, remembering to quote the promo code ACRE to take advantage of all the benefits of our partnership. More details at the end of this podcast. This evening, I'm sat with Russ Edwards, Head of Residential Product for Lendlease Europe. Russ's responsibility for a pipeline of 30,000 homes across the UK and Europe. Prior to joining Lendlease, Russ was Design Director for Pocket Living, Head of Residential for DRMM, and an architect with Design Engine Architects. Russ, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So, let's get started. Let's kick us off. How does Chapter 1 begin for you? Okay, uh, well, I think Chapter 1, I guess, with a lot of architects um, starts with my education um, and I had a pretty traditional architecture education, studied my degree and postgrad at University of Portsmouth, had a slight detour uh, in spending a, a semester at the University of Vienna as part of the Erasmus programme and uh, yeah you know um, loved architecture I would say I probably didn't have a great idea of what architecture really was when I went to university um, but I was lucky to have some uh, incredible tutors that helped me to understand the difference between drawing buildings and uh, designing architecture. So you know I like to do a bit of background I was doing a little bit of research how do you think uh, if I'd managed to speak to someone from your part two days at Design Engine, how do you think they might have described you? I think they would describe me as pretty committed um, to the point of aggression at some points, I would have thought. Um, but, you know, it was a great time in my career, I think. Um, Design Engine were a startup, effectively. So and I was number one uh, employee. Um, or the only employee, in fact. So I had to be, uh, you know, architect. I had to be receptionist, handyman, T-boy, uh, all of that kind of stuff. So um, it was a great grounding, if you like, and, and a, a sort of circular education. So this is what they said. Stubbornness, determination, <laughs> and in the early years, we'd need to add a bit of healthy feistiness to the list but he matured very fast and was generally one of the most valuable members of staff. What, I've, what I'm curious to ask then, sort of, uh, Russ, was about how you've, uh, maybe let's say, sort of how you found those earliest, earliest chapters. You know, I talk an awful lot about, about learning, don't I? I talk about sort of um, learning leading to accelerating. Um, given what, you know, what these guys sort of said and sort of you know, that, that role you had, sort of, what were you learning the most because these guys obviously have noticed, you know, sort of big changes and developments in, in you. But what do you think you were learning the most? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, firstly, I recognise all of all of those uh, descriptive words. So um, that's useful, at least. But I think, um, I guess I was learning that force of will isn't enough. Um, you know, you can't bulldoze your way through uh, really complex uh, projects or, or, in fact, you know, situations in life and I think that you know it's fair to say that that had been one of my core strategies um, you know through uni through my early life was to sort of just 
you know, use use hard work and a sort of bullish attitude to to overcome issues. And I think through my my early career with the fantastic opportunities that Design Engine and Architecture PLB prior to that gave me by throwing me in at the deep end and putting me in situations where, you know, I, I was surrounded by people with 10, 20, 30 years more experience in the building industry um, and architecture industry than I had. You know, it taught me a little bit of, uh, I guess, uh, circumspection and the need to sort of take a breath and, you know, uh, uh, employ a more nuanced approach. So I would say, yeah, certainly that that was the early early lessons from um, from that period in my career. What I wanted to ask, and I'll ask this the same question a bit later on as well in, in the career, given that you at later in your your career, you choose to to divert your architecture sort of focus to to the to the clients. Was there anything as early as this that made you sort of be thinking about that? Was that was that on your radar at that time? Um, I don't I don't think I was thinking about particularly transferring to client side at that point I was very committed to kind of architecture with a capital A and particularly drawn to you know education projects and other projects with a particularly sort of social purpose so that was very much my focus at that point but I was lucky enough in my early career to um, have some great clients so I think it's fair to say that even at that point I was becoming increasingly aware of the hugely positive impact that a, um, a good client can have and the, and conversely the hugely negative impact that a poor client can have on the outcomes uh, for a project. Well, that's an interesting sort of um, thing. That, I mean, that's, I'm not sure if I'm picking up any battle scars here, but so without, without, without saying any names, um, for anyone who's, who's in this sort of stage, tell, you know, tell us a bit more about maybe what the lesson you learned from that particular. Well, um, I mean, I think... You know there are some key characteristics that make a good client and that hopefully i've i've brought with me to the client side i think um you know being communicative and being a good communicator is is really important i think being decisive is um equally important and and not just making decisions but you know living by those decisions and owning them and i think Beyond that, there are obvious issues like the, you know, the importance of a brief, the um, adequacy of uh, timeframes, etc. And I think if if one or or more than one of those sort of ingredients are missing, um, it makes for a really challenging project, and you're almost kind of set up to fail, you know, to a, to a greater or lesser degree. So, I guess an increasing awareness of that. I think was um, a, a key sort of factor in my early um, architectural career. Okay, Russ. So once more, going back to that the, that theme of sort of waves. You know, the, the people who I I sit down with have this ability to to spot when they're accelerating and they're learning, and also when there's when there is something they want to go and learn or when they want they want to push on, and they have this ability to create that sort of spark. And it feels like we're you know we're heading now towards sort of one of these sort of catalyst moments. So tell us a bit more about sort of you know what happens next in your career. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I'd, I'd consolidated, I guess, my career. I'd qualified as an architect with Design Engine. And as I've, as I've said, had a, had a great time 
um, up to that point, but I was looking for the next challenge quite um, deliberately. And I think in terms of that next challenge, I really wanted it to be with a, you know, a practice that had a very clear design philosophy, particularly around how buildings go together. Um, and, and and so I guess I, I scanned the profession at that time and I identified only two to three practices that I, I thought fit that bill. And I sort of cold called them effectively. Um, I, I sort of prepared a, a bespoke CV and, you know, a letter and sort of sent them off. None of the practices were advertising um, at the time. And I was lucky enough to get into a dialogue with DRMM. And, you know, around a year later, actually, so it took quite a while, but um, we maintained a, a sort of conversation. And around a year later, a position became available with um, DRMM. So um, I was able to to sort of, you know, join a, at that point, a sort of up and coming, uh, very much design led practice. Tell us a bit more about the about this sort of earliest um, uh, months or years in terms of within that practice. Sort of what what in particular were you learning, and and was it were you learning what you what you expected to, given what you how sort of thoughtful you were about who to approach? I mean, it was quite transactional, if you like, um, which which is perhaps a strange way of describing it. the The early early period at DRMM, um, so I. Smaller, smallish practice around 10, um, 10 people. Um, and I, I was recruited, if you like, to bring some delivery and contract administration experience, which, um, you know, at that time, DRMM had delivered a couple of award-winning projects, were increasingly getting involved and invited to, to participate with much larger, more complex projects and recognised the need to sort of reinforce that, that side of their... Um, of their offer so that was me um, and that was what I was offering them and in in return I guess I was being exposed to some you know really interesting quite radical sort of design approaches um, and, and radical thinking DRMM always maintained a very strong connection with academia and, and the architectural in, uh, association in particular so the kind of peers and colleagues that I was working with were very creative. So I was getting, you know, my, my sort of kicks, if you like, creatively from just osmosis as much as anything. So I think um, it was very much a two-way uh, transaction, as I, as I mentioned. So Rush, you mentioned then about complex uh, projects. And uh, what I want to do now is I want, I want to dig into that a bit more. So tell us a bit more about sort of what those projects were and, and maybe also what you learned from them. Well, so one of the key projects that springs to mind was um, one of the plots for the 2012 Athletes Village, which was a significant step in scale for DRMM. Also, you know, pretty challenging in terms of uh, timeframes. Obviously, it had a very fixed deadline, but also in terms of client. So the, the client was Lendlease for, for that project, and that was DRMM's first experience with that kind of corporate client so i was uh, the lead on that project and and ran you know a pretty large team for for drmm at that point 
but in, you know it, it was a pretty formative project for me i i met my, my client on that project who's still a good friend of mine a guy called Seamus McCartney and he really um i think developed that thread that had been developing in my career around this awareness of you know how a good client behaves what what makes them a good client how how they can influence a project at these key key points to really you know immeasurably sort of improve the outcomes and also navigate that complexity um you know but but whilst retaining the the project vision and and the key parts of of that concept that will make it a good piece of architecture in the end so Russell, we take uh, take a beat now. There's something that you you mentioned then about about leading uh, teams and leading quite large teams now, and particularly on these these sort of larger, more, uh, more complex projects. How was that transition for for you, you know, from someone who, who who at the start of this you know was obviously an avid fan about architecture and not just for architecture's sake about about its impact? How did you manage then to to make that transition from maybe being less influential in the actual design but being more influential in uh, in the teams and how easy was that um you know it was incredibly difficult i think being candid and i think it remains a kind of struggle that giving up of control uh, on all sorts of aspects i think part of my move to drmm was a bit liberating in in some respects in that I no longer felt that I needed to drive the design decisions in many respects. You know, I was I was surrounded by arguably more talented designers than myself, and I I could recognise that. But I did have skills that um, the broader practice didn't have at that point around you know delivery, management of the process, management of the design program, and management of the team, the broader team, not just the DRMM team, the, you know, the whole consultant and project team. And, you know, so in many respects, it was it was actually quite a smooth transition to a sort of leadership role, or, but it wasn't without its challenges, you know, and I think anyone who's gone from the sort of tools to more of a, a leadership role will recognise how challenging it is to delegate but it's also, you know, at the time in the architectural industry, there was a huge overtime uh, culture, you know, practice, certainly London practices were, were renowned for r- ridiculously long hours working every weekend. And, and I was sort of a part of that. But increasingly, you know, in the leadership role, you became a little bit remote from the, the sharp end, if you like. And, and I found that very challenging to to you know be able to continue to motivate the team to continue to um, oversee the quality of the outputs and everything whilst you're not necessarily in the mix in the same way as you were sort of earlier in your career so you know I, as, as I say pretty pretty challenging and I think in particular delegation and as I, as I also mentioned I, I still I still struggle with that if I'm honest well, let me t- while we're t- while we're talking about this sort of chapter, and I wanted to bring in then something something that someone else has also said, and when I'd asked them about about sort of what they thought was some of your most prominent traits from from people who would have known you at DRMM. Now, this is this is what they said. They said one of your most prominent traits is a very rare combination of creativity and logical thinking. Do you, I mean, do you do you agree with that? 
Yeah, I do. I, I think it's probably majoring on the logical, um, but you know, one of one of the kind of secrets of my success, if you like, is that I'm I know enough around the creative side to be dangerous. You know, I can I can you know this sounds incredibly arrogant, but I don't kind of make mistakes from a creative perspective. You know, but but equally, I'm not reaching the highs. You know, I'm I'm not that kind of creative genius, but I don't make silly mistakes. You know, my I guess the logical part of my brain prevents that but it also you know as i mentioned prevents those kind of real highs of of the, you know the, the, the huge creative talents that i've been lucky enough to work with that's what i was going to going to ask is it is this is this pragmatism is this sort of compromise or is it pure commerciality well compromise is a is a dirty word in terms of creativity so i, I wouldn't say it's that i mean i i think you know certainly my my strength and I think why I was valuable to DRMM at that point in their career, in their in their growth, was that I could deliver um, the visions that better designers than me would generate, and that in truth at that time they would struggle to deliver themselves. So it was a it was a sort of marriage of convenience, if you like, more than compromise. And I, as I say, I think we both kind of you know got a lot out of it. Because I was, up, you know, able to upskill some of those kind of, you know, very very creative designers to to train them into what it meant to be, you know, what what more than being a designer you have to be to be an architect. Well, that's interesting you mentioned that about, about vision because that was that was something else that's, uh, another sort of source had, had said, and they they'd sort of described this as you having a sort of a twenty twenty clarity of vision, but but not just that you had this ability to communicate it. This is obviously something you're 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 aware of. Gives gives a, a good example of sort of when 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 you think that was that you really sort of put that into into play. Um, I think one of the clearest examples that I could cite uh, in terms of that might might actually be a little bit later in my career um, when I was at Pocket and Pocket had been toying with a an idea of developing a two bedroom starter home um, and, and Pocket's model is is uh, quite unique it's um, an affordable home offer uh, that's specifically for first-time buyers and to that point had only comprised of one bedroom homes so obviously because of planning policy there was a need to mix that up a little bit but viability concerns meant that delivering standard two-bedroom homes wasn't going to be viable so in my role with pocket which was as design director I was challenged to kind of, I guess, develop a strategy for that. And that strategy had to encapture, you know, design, but also the, the sort of complexities around planning policy, housing policy and economics. So I guess I approached it by uh, design first, which is a pretty recurring theme. So we, we held a, an invited design competition we were lucky enough to get, I think, 20 really, really stunning proposals from leading practices in the UK. And we were able to use that, those outcomes and those outputs as a sort of piece of, you know, propaganda almost as a, as a sort of discussion point with those policymakers and decision makers to, to highlight first that this would be a really good offer to the squeezed middle in London but also to outline a roadmap for how they could 
agree to endorse that proposal, um, you know, through the various policy obstacles. So, Russell, I asked you then sort of earlier about the transition from architect to sort of, let's say, sort of, you know, practice sort of leader. Now we've gone practice architect, practice leader now to design director for a developer. Between out of those those two transitions, which had the steepest learning curve? I would say architect to developer okay. um, had a had a yeah, it was a very steep learning curve. More because, you know, I, I still had to obviously deploy all of my architectural skills or, or the majority of my architectural skills, but I had to supplement those skills with a much broader skill base and, and sort of context, you know, economic skills project management skills, uh, et cetera, planning, you know, um, planning policy knowledge uh, beyond the level which which I'd had to sort of develop as, a, as an architect. And I think, again, you know, the number of stakeholders, if you like, in, in the design director role that I um, had at Pocket, you know, multiplied significantly from um, leading a, an architectural team where you're, you know, you, you're very clear who your client is, you're very clear who your in-house team is and who your extended team is. Um, all, all of that became less clear in a development world. You know, you've got several clients, you've got the customer, you've got the local authority, you've got your investors, etc. You know, so it, it becomes a much more complex um, sort of stakeholder map, if you like. So, Russ, before we came onto um, the studio, we were having a chat, weren't we, about, about um, and we talked about Pocket. And you described this as being sort of all of a 10-minute decision um, when you were offered the role as, uh, as to whether to accept. Why? Why, was, why did it sort of instantly sort of resonate with you as, as, this, uh, as the ideal sort of next move? That's a good question. I think Pocket itself was a really interesting business, you know, with a great, a great model um, directly addressing London's you know, chronic housing crisis and, and with a very sort of niche and design-led offer. So the business itself was very attractive. I knew a number of the people involved in the business, partly through contacts in, in my earlier career. But I think it was also time for me, I guess, to put my money where my mouth was or, or walk the walk in terms of this uh, awareness around, you know, positive influence from a good good client um so it was a yeah it was a very sort of easy decision in that in that respect and i think um you know I, I think it's really key that over the past five to ten years um there are there are a number of really influential very talented architects who've left traditional practice to pursue careers you know client side and um you know as a as an architect i always enjoyed working with a, a kind of educated client um, on design issues. Um, and I think the more of us on the client side, you know, the better for the whole industry and, and the architectural profession in simple terms. Why do you think it's better? Because better decisions are made. I think if, if a client or a decision maker has design awareness and design skills, then you know, that, that's the only way really you're going to get an appropriate synthesis of all the drivers that are needed to, to, to come to a decision. You know, decisions, sadly, 
are often made purely on a commercial basis. Whereas I think the, the particular training that architects receive, you know, the, the rounded nature of that and the multi-skilled nature of that gives you uh, a really good broad skill base to, um, to, to weigh up the different drivers for a decision. Um, particularly, you know, when you can add commercial awareness to those sort of traditional architectural skills, design skills. Okay. Well, sticking with them with the uh, with the pocket sort of chapter, we talked about some maybe some of the uh, about how steep that learning curve was then from going from from architect to to developer. What were you personally learning now? What uh, how was how was this sort of benefiting this your sort of career trajectory? Well, again, it was another startup, albeit another you know type of business. So uh, again, we you know had to be very agile in terms of leading the design, hands-on on projects and overseeing sort of design development, but also engaging quite strategically with local authorities, with the GLA around policy issues, around project proposals, trying to um, innovate in that space, in the policy space, but also in the in the delivery space. So I was able to push for a, a modern methods of construction um, agenda at Pocket, which um, subsequently became, you know, the, their their pr- preferred delivery method. So using volumetric construction. Um, so you know, quite quite specific, I guess, areas of of learning and growth. But I think more generally, I was learning how to be a client, you know, and how to balance those drivers that I've I've just mentioned, you know, how to when when to put additional weighting to say commercial drivers over the you know architecture with a capital a because ultimately the role had become more about housing delivery for this chronically under undersupplied part of our population that were also incredibly important to london's broader health you know the the offer is is targeted at key workers which i know is an out of date term but in in simple terms you know nhs workers teachers emergency service personnel so i think i you know the the broader impact and the broader uh, challenge of the housing crisis was was definitely part of my learning curve at pocket and really you know, I guess made me switch 100% to housing as as a sort of mechanism for addressing that. What comes next? Um, well, after Pocket, I moved to my current role at Lendlease. Again, another um, ex-client. So um, you know, there's 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 a degree to which much of my career path has been shaped by the networks I I sort of developed early in my career. And, you know, again, Lenny's quite a different type of developer to Pocket International for a start. So um, my my role now includes projects overseas, particularly in Italy at the moment. But scale was, was I guess, the big attractor. And I think, um, you know, if you, if you sort of look back to my early involvement in, in housing, with DRMM, you know, I was able to oversee the delivery of perhaps a couple of hundred homes every couple of years, moved to Pocket where, you know, we were looking at a couple of hundred homes every year. And now at Lenny's, we're delivering between 750 to 850 homes 
every year. So, you know, that scaling of home housing delivery is what's sort of dragged me, um, you know, through or, or partly what's dragged me through those subsequent moves. Um, but equally, as, as I'm less hands on, you know, I, I don't get my pens out in kind of anger anymore and, and I'm not designing the homes. I'm hopefully improving them and steering steering their design development. But I think in, in that context, when I'm no longer on the tools, the financial firepower that um, a business like Lendlease can put into innovation and uh, R&D it was also a huge. Right, well, listen, I, need, I wanted to, to get a bit of a cheeky question in. And I, th- and I think sort of what I, when I sort of listening to when you're so- talking about sort of pocket and the startup nature and the sort of social conscience there, a bit all, all within a, a commercial framework, no, no doubt as well, uh, and about how that's helping. Now, I did want to, I, I wanted to ask really as to whether you thought you could still have that same impact within a Goliath of an organisation, sort of globally like like Lendlease. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if I didn't feel that I could have that influence, then I arguably I wouldn't have made the move. And, um, you know, I've been with Lendlease now for close to four years and um, I, I think I am having that influence. I hope I am having that influence. I think, you know, the scale of the business is certainly, you know, very, very different. It is a kind of David and Goliath scenario, as, as you put it. Um, but with that comes a huge amount of firepower. Um, so as a, as a sort of global business, we're able to firstly share knowledge and experience across, you know, an, a number of geographies, um, which, which benefits us all. And I'm um, heavily engaged with that. But secondly, you know, from a from a pure fiscal sort of basis, you know, we're able to directly fund innovation, research and development outside of projects. And, you know, in, in this region, I'm heavily involved with the businesses designed for manufacture and assembly strategy and how that directly impacts our net zero and absolute zero carbon objectives, which are which are pretty ambitious. Um, and equally, from a global perspective, you know, digital investment is 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 significant, and we're busy developing our own digital toolset to dramatically improve project outcomes. So, you know, the answer to your question is, um, I think I think I can still influence things, but that that influence is is inevitably more strategic. You know, I am I am less hands on. On the individual projects, I still, you know, get my red pen out every so often and mark up, um, mark up drawings. Uh, you know, much to project architects' sort of dissatisfaction, I'm sure. <laughs> but, but, you know, you, you're you're right. The the nature of my influence is certainly a lot more strategic. What did you learn about yourself, out of interest, when when you made that 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 most recent sort of move? Then, I learned that I'm still stubborn and obstinate and um, difficult to work with at times and that you know I'm still I'm still in one of those I think very steep learning curves to be candid you know every every career move I've made I think the 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 network of day-to-day contacts day-to-day stakeholders increases or it feels like it increases sort of exponentially 
and the the nature of those relationships become much more complex and nuanced and you know you, you you're constantly um learning i guess about how to interact with people how to influence people um and how to you know leverage those relationships to kind of improve the outcomes but ultimately you, you kind of also learn that you have to have a lot of self belief so the the bullish parts of my character that I I mentioned as as being sort of prevalent quite early on in my career have again sort of come to the fore here because you have to be able to overcome obstacles bureaucracy and sort of you know the attitude that we've done it like this for the past 100 years so why change it um so you know in i guess my bullish part of my character has come come full circle a little bit and and if if anything probably come to the fore a bit so Russ, at this at this point now we spend quite a bit of time now sort of chatting about sort of how we've got up until this this point um i wanted now to to start looking forward and I wanted to ask you the first question that I um, uh, I'd wanted to ask really is sort of, you know what what have you got to learn next? Well, I think from a, a a very personal perspective, and I haven't necessarily discussed this with my uh, my senior leadership team, so there may be a different view. Um, I think there's two there's two areas that I'm looking to continue to develop, if you like. Um, one is around the digital tools so um having i guess stopped using the digital tools uh, directly some some years ago i'm i'm back in the um uh, the cycle now of of engaging with new tools and you know new generative tools and automation in design and 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 areas like that so i'm finding that quite exciting in terms of how that can positively impact projects and that's an area where i'm i'm looking to grow my skill base and on the flip side to that i guess is the the nature of my role with with lenny's today has been very much focused on the buildings themselves and within those buildings the the residential homes i'm i'm looking to increase that scope to i guess engage a lot more with the spaces between the buildings the master planning but it, equally the other building types that lenny's um deliver so particularly office and retail so we're, we're we're in discussion about how we grow the the support function that my team provides to the business to include more than just residential and personally for you what do you want to achieve next well i've been lucky enough to achieve a really good life work balance over the past three to five years which i don't underestimate um so i'd like to maintain that but personally i you know i want to keep growing as i mentioned i think my my learning curve at the moment is still pretty steep and i want to maintain that trajectory um i think there's lots to lots to go at in the industry i think you know we're at a a really important threshold for the industry we we have to we have to change the way we deliver projects we you know we have to take the carbon conundrum a lot more seriously we have to address affordability you know, there's there's huge amounts to go at, and so I, you know, I'll be looking for for more challenges in that respect. And then, sort of, given the title of this of this series is is talking about sort of accelerating careers, and 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 the people who who I invite on, you know, inevitably have you know, have been very very successful. 
over over the time of your career, has that idea of success for you has that has that changed? Or do you measure it in different ways? Yeah, definitely. I think early in my career, success was about you know it sounds it sounds pretty uh, superficial to be to be honest, but success was around you know plaudits from my peers, getting getting awards, getting nominations, getting column inches, and and that sense of authorship of of buildings. I think it it certainly transformed, you know, in the in the sort of last ten years to being more around trying to trying to impact the housing crisis in, in one way or another, you know, positively. And I think but success, I guess it, yeah, it's become I think a lot more nuanced again, you know, nuance is a word I've used a few times in this conversation, but I think it means different things at different times for me. You know, right now developing a, a low carbon superstructure for our residential projects is is giving me huge job satisfaction and um you know if i can make that make that system viable then that would be a huge success so it's it's less like i guess it's less about you know the public eye and you know the pats on the back and more about knowing that we're developing you know an answer to some of these big challenges um that are out there in the industry well russell i think on the um on that sort of uh, note, I think we'll, we'll draw it all to a close, mate. Thank you very much for uh, for joining us. I've really, really enjoyed the uh, sort of the conversation in terms of uh, from where your career sort of started to where where we're up to now, and, and no doubt there's an awful lot more to come as well in the future. So thanks again. Thank you. The Urban Land Institute is the oldest and largest network of cross-disciplinary real estate and land use experts in the world, with more than forty-five thousand global members. The ULI's ethos of personal development makes them an ideal collaborator on our podcast, and we encourage our listeners to learn more and become members by signing up at uli.org forward slash join, quoting the promo code ACRE. Thank you for listening.